Hi, my name is Maddie. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. The Lord your God will raise, you, raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Steve. The New Testament reading is found in Revelation 21, 2 through 4. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Marna. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Mark 9, 1 through 8. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Let's remain standing as we pray. God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see this morning, that we would see Jesus, that we would see our lives in the light of who you are. And we ask that you give us ears to hear that your word would reach deep down inside of us, mess with us, challenge us, rearrange the furniture in our hearts today. And by the power of your spirit, make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. If you've traveled a bit overseas and you've interacted with other cultures, it doesn't take long to 
realize that in, in, in many cultures, if not every culture, nearly every culture, there is some system of belief, some system of religion, some form of worship, some way of making meaning out of life. But one of the things you notice very quickly once you uh, observe that made that first observation that A, they have some sort of religion or some sort of system, the very next observation you might make is that this system is not only kind of a, a way of giving meaning to life, but it, it is in itself a way of actually reaching God. Uh, religion, whether it's a teaching or whether it is a system of behavior or a set of practices or rituals, however we define it, in some way, shape, or form, these are, are like rungs of the ladder that people have said, this is how we climb, this is how we reach God, this is how we ascend the mountain. And actually, you might be here thinking, well, isn't that just how Christianity works? Isn't that the same with us? That, that, that actually, that isn't all of this, this, this baptism stuff and this communion thing and this church thing and the Bible thing, isn't all of that just finding the rungs in the ladder so that we can reach God, because isn't that some sort of the goal, the goal in some way? Now, a more cynical perspective might say, well, religion is just sort of the coping mechanism of a, a group of people who can't deal with the fact that we're alone in the universe. And so we had to invent that there's a being up there. We had to create this, this story and to say there's somehow out there. And yet what is remarkable is, is how stories like that are common in nearly every culture around the world, if not every culture. And so then someone says, well, the, the, the question is not really that we couldn't deal with, the issue wasn't that we couldn't deal with our loneliness in the universe, it's that we couldn't deal with our distance from God. So sure, maybe there is a God, maybe there is a being, but we couldn't deal with the fact that we are distant from him, so we needed some way, whether it was sacrifices or, or some kind of superstition, just a way to climb, put another rung on the ladder, just climb up some tool to scale the mountain. It's fair to say that for centuries, if not millennia, one of the ways of understanding religion was the question, or is the question, how do we reach God? But in our day, that seems to be no longer the case. It doesn't really seem that people are fascinated by the question of how do we reach God, maybe to some degree, but maybe another question has sort of overtaken that one, and it's the question of why do we actually need God? And, and so religion in our world, faith of any kind, is sort of this ancillary kind of something on the margins where we say, well, that's good and fine so long as it helps you be a nicer person or a better person. But if it becomes a problem, we really don't need it. And so religious extremism is viewed as the very root of the problem of the whole world, worldwide. The, the, really, the issue is not a religion. The issue is any kind of religious fanaticism. And as we're discovering that here in the West... Religious fanaticism is being defined in ways that maybe we didn't think they would be in the past. Speaking to a friend about Jesus is now feels like an aggressive or excessive extremist religious expression. And so the question people are asking is no longer how do we reach God, but really how do we, why do we need God? Why do I have to have him? That, that's, that's good and fine for you to say Jesus is God. I, frankly, I really don't care who you think is God. I, I'm really not sure why we actually need him in the first place. Maybe you've had conversations with friends like this. I think this chapter that we're in in Mark's gospel, in, a, in, a, in an interesting way, tackles both of those questions. 
It allows us to wrestle in this, these two stories in Mark 9 about the question of how do we reach God and maybe even the other question, the newer question of why do we need him. We've been in the series at New Life Downtown through the Gospel of Mark. This is actually part 12 of the series. Uh, I know it's been going for a little while and we will wrap up before Mother's Day, I promise. But if you've been following along in this series, um, you, you'll remember that Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It is also, by tradition, the earliest written. It's very likely that Matthew and Luke borrowed some of the, the stories from Mark and, and perhaps mixed in a few things of their own and rearranged uh, the sequence to make their own unique points. But Mark, Mark seems to have somewhat less of an agenda. Mark really seems to just sort of be laying out the, the, the bullet points as he's hearing them. He's kind of assembling these stories, deciding to write them down. It's been 30 years or, or so since Christ has been uh, raised from the dead. And Mark's saying, okay, let's, let's kind of put this down. And it's possible that one of Mark's source, uh, sources was actually uh, the disciple Peter, which is one of the reasons why Mark's gospel has a lot of insight into Peter. But Mark, Mark allows us to wrestle with questions like these of why, how do we reach God and why do we need God. Mark allows us to wrestle with that because he doesn't censor things from us. He actually shows us the disciples struggling to believe. He shows us Jesus' own family calling Jesus a mad person, a person who's lost his mind. Now, if you were trying to paint a rosy picture of a Messiah, you might want to leave that story out maybe. Mark shows us people wrestling to figure out who is this guy. And so one of the questions we've we've carried throughout the series is, who is Jesus? What does he mean for us? And does he have anything to say about these two questions that we've raised today? Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now it's possible Mark is foreshadowing the resurrection, that the resurrection of Jesus is the kingdom of God coming with power in, in its full sense in, up until that point, fullest sense up until that point. But Mark's also about to tell us another story which hints even more at that. Verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I love this. He did not know what to say, so he kept talking. <laughs> if you like that, you know people like that, you know, talk until you say something, right? And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This is a story rich with imagery. This is a story rich with symbols or pictures that would have meant something to Peter and James and John, and they would have meant something even to Mark's audience. Let's look at just a few of these images, okay? First image, a mountain. Now, we're Coloradoans. The mountains mean many things to us. The mountains mean skiing. The mountains mean hiking. The mountains mean something beautiful to look at, you know? But the mountains in ancient literature represents something different. When you read other stories, not just the, the Jewish stories, but even other ancient stories, the, um, a mountain is always a metaphor 
for a meeting place between God and humans. The mountain, a mountain is a metaphor for a meeting place between God and humans. But more than just a meeting place, actually, in a, in, a, in a way, a mountain was kind of God's residence. It was sort of God's address. And so it wasn't, if you wanted to meet with God, it wasn't that just it so happened that he met us halfway. It was more like you climbed up the mountain so you could meet with God. And in fact, you see this language in the Old Testament. There's a psalm uh, in one of the psalms that says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Only the one with clean hands and a pure heart. There's a sense of walking up. And many ancient temples, Jewish or, or, or pagan, many ancient temples are built on mountains for the same reason, a sense of journeying up. In fact, the temple in Jerusalem is built on, on something like a mount, and so when pilgrims would come from other parts of Israel once a year to offer sacrifices, they would walk up the mountain. There's a whole set of psalms. They used to sing these songs. They're called songs of ascent, songs to sing while you're climbing a mountain. Now, some of you who actually climb mountains are thinking, listen, it's not that tough of a mountain if you're still singing, you know. <laughs> but these guys... These guys are singing as they're journeying up to meet with God. The mountain was where you met with God, and, it, and you met with him because you were ascending. The second image in here is a cloud. Now, a cloud, when you think about the old Jewish stories, remember when they were freed from Egypt and they were wandering through the wilderness, it was a cloud that led them by the day. The cloud represented God's presence. When the people of Israel finally built a temple, the first worship service that they had, they were singing, and then all of a sudden, the glory of God came like a cloud, and then they couldn't even sing anymore, and the priests couldn't even do their jobs anymore. Cloud is a symbol of glory. Mountain, symbol of encounter. Cloud, symbol of glory. And then we got two characters here, Moses and Elijah. What, what's that about? Why these two blokes? Well, some suggest, well, maybe Moses, you know, he's kind of the guy that represents the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Torah, the teaching or the law, if you will. And then Elijah, doesn't he, maybe he represents all of the prophets since he did these amazing miracles confronting the prophets of Baal, calling down fire from heaven. Maybe it has to do with the law and the prophets. Yes, in one sense, perhaps. But at the very least, we can say these two guys are pillars of the story up until this moment. And they appear with Jesus as a sort of endorsement or validation, as a way of saying, this is the one that our story has been leading up to. This is the one who will complete and fulfill and fully do what we could only hint at doing. And so that's why the Old Testament reading this morning came from that passage where God says, Moses, I'll raise up another prophet like you. Listen to him. When Moses shows up, it's an it's implicit way of saying, this is that guy. Listen to him. And then that's exactly what the voice from heaven says. Listen to him. There is a sense in which Moses and Elijah are saying, look, the story of God's work to save and rescue the world began through us, but it's culminating in him. This is why at the Mount of Transfiguration, after a moment, Moses and Elijah disappear, and it's just Jesus. It's a way of saying, we're here to let you know he's the guy, and then we're no longer in the picture because we don't matter in the picture as much anymore. Does that make sense? The third image is of tents or tabernacles. Now, Peter always gets, we always kind of give Peter a hard time, you know, like, well... 
Peter, what, what were you trying to do? Build these tents up there? Were you trying to do like Jesus land or something, you know? And you take your photo with Moses, you know? Uh, maybe have popcorn with Elijah. I mean, I'm, but actually, Peter was doing what a good Jew had been raised to do. The Jewish people had a festival called the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was their way of celebrating remembering the time how God was faithful to them in the desert. And in the desert, they lived in tents. And eventually, they built a big tent for God and God's presence. And so the whole tent thing was about God dwelling with us, us dwelling with God. And they marked this every year. Get this, okay? Every year, they had a feast where they basically moved out of their homes and lived in tents for a week. They went camping. They saved up at the REI garage sale. They got their gear, and they said, it's the Feast of Tabernacles that we're going camping, and we're going to remember how we dwelt with God, and God dwelt with us. We journeyed together. in the de-. So when Peter sees this, this is what he's been conditioned to say. He's totally been formed to respond in this way. He says, wait a minute. I see a mountain. It means we're meeting God. I see a cloud. That means glory. All we're missing now is a tent. Let's get some tents. Makes sense. It kind of makes sense. Except that what the disciples didn't know is that Jesus is the only temple that the human race will ever need. The gospel writers, in so many different ways, want us to see Jesus is in himself the dwelling place of God. No, more than that, he is God. Paul would say it in Colossians, he said, in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells. Jesus is the very temple of God. And you know what that means? It means that we no longer have to figure out how to go up and dwell with God. God came down to dwell with us. We don't need to climb the mountain to dwell with God. God himself has come down to dwell with us. Now, when you think of it this way, all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, We've been looking at the story all wrong. We've been looking at this whole story of Scripture all wrong because in our minds we think, well, wasn't it Old Testament? They had to ascend and get to God. And then did God just all of a sudden change his mind? No, if you think about it, all along, God has been the one coming after us. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, who hid? God or the humans? The humans. And so they're hiding, and God comes after them saying, where are you? Why are you hiding? See, sometimes we talk about this thing with God as a game of hide-and-seek. Sure, but it's not God that's hiding. It's you. It's me. This whole quest is not about how can I find God, but rather, will you let God find you? We don't need to climb the mountain to dwell with God. God came down to dwell with us. But then, our second question. So that's good news. That's great. God's come to dwell with us. That's wonderful. Cool. But but remind me again, why do I actually need him? Why do I need God? Why do I care? Have you ever gotten an invitation to an event, you know, a concert or a, or a fancy banquet or something, and a friend that's inviting you says, you, you really want to be there because so-and-so is coming. And you can tell this means a, a lot to them, but you have no clue who that person is. And so you're like, oh, yeah, I don't know who that is. <laughs> no, no, you don't get it. They wrote this book and they did this thing. And, they, and you're like, right. Yeah, I still don't know who that is, <laughs> you know. 
There's a story, there's a famous violinist named Joshua Bell. Some of you might be familiar with his work. And they did this thing where he had packed out this beautiful concert hall somewhere up in the northeast, I think in the D.C. area. And just on, on one of the nights of the week, he just packed out that, that, that concert hall and played the most beautiful music. He's considered perhaps the greatest violinist of our day. And then a few days later, they had him stand in the subway station in a hoodie with his case open and just play. And everybody walked by him. Whatever, who's that guy? Weird, weird, you know, staring at their phones. And here's Joshua, here's this guy that you couldn't, you couldn't get a ticket if you wanted to that night. It was, it was sold out. Maybe it, was, maybe it would have been cost prohibitive. But here's all these people walking right by him, like, oh, cool, cool guy playing violin. Wow, weird. Okay, anyway. And that's a little bit like us. I could end the sermon and say, God has come down to dwell with us. And you're like, oh, cool, right. Okay, what do you want to have for lunch? I mean, why does this matter? Why is this good news? It's not good news yet, is it? It's not good news yet. The next story that Mark tells us shows us a little bit about the second question. Verse 14. Verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them, about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. They were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And when they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything and have, have compassion on us and help us. I want you to hear the emotion, feel the emotion of this father. He says, look, we found the best people we knew how to find. It was your disciples and they were not able. And so then he says to Jesus, Jesus, I don't know. But if you are able, would you please have compassion and do something? Why do we need God? Why is it good news that God has come down to dwell with us? Because every once in a while, we are reminded, confronted with the reality that we can't control the things that matter most. That the things that matter most to us in this life are actually beyond our reach. We are like the disciples looking at impossible situations around us and saying, we are not able. We, can't, we are not able. We are like this father, brokenhearted, looking at his son and saying, I, they weren't able. I'm not able. Are you able? I'm stuck. Every once in a while, something happens in life to remind us. And as 21st century Westerners, we need reminding of this. Because with our wealth and with our technology and with all of the stuff around us, we've become convinced of this illusion that we actually can control everything in our lives. 
Now I can script this, I can control this, I can make sure that this doesn't happen to me, I can make sure that with, uh, with enough connections, we'll, everything will work out for our kids, they'll get the right jobs, they'll, get the right, they'll ma- marry the right people, and then all of a sudden, it doesn't work. You do everything you can to keep yourself uh, healthy and fit and eat right and work out and all of this stuff and take your supplements and we know better than other generations did and we do all of this stuff right and all of a sudden, boom, a disease that came out of nowhere, a sickness that's crippling, marriage that fell apart, a child who's turned away from the faith, a business that went bust. Well, I, did, I did everything right. I did this right. I, 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 I dialed up all the right. I made all the right calls. And all of a sudden we remember there are these moments, there are these things that we cannot control. There are things beyond our control. And all of the positivity and optimism and I can do this and I can do that, all of a sudden we're forced to say the very thing we never wanted to say, which is, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. And when you hear this father talking about his son, what I hear is the heart, the voice, the words of a heartbroken individual who's saying, I've come to the end. And and he says, Jesus, I don't know. If you can do anything, please have compassion. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Maybe the most honest prayer the Gospels record. Prayer that really would would, would really accurately articulate what we feel on most days. God, I'm stuck, and I kind of believe that you can help, but I also don't know that I fully believe, so please help. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw a crowd, that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him uh, uh, privately why we, why we couldn't do this. And he says this thing about prayer. There's echoes in this story of Moses and Elijah. Remember Moses? Moses, the one who delivered the people of Israel from Egypt. Moses, the one who led them out of their captivity, who delivered them. Elijah, who's Elijah? Elijah's the one who confronted the false gods of his day. This story shows us how Jesus is pulling together the great story of a deliverer and the great story of one who defeats and confronts evil. And in this one story, Jesus comes down the mountain and he says, okay, I'm going to deliver you by defeating evil. And in himself, he confronts both of these things. Why do we need God? Because when God dwells with us, evil is defeated and we are delivered. When God dwells with us, the darkness is defeated and we are delivered. Our New Testament reading this morning points us toward that final great day. Revelation 21 says, when God dwells with us, he comes down. The final chapter, the final chapter of this story is not us going up there. It's him coming down to be with us, 
to dwell. And it's, it's God's dwelling with us that finally defeats death and wipes away every tear, all of this stuff. We know that in its fullness, when God dwells with us, evil is defeated and we are delivered. But here we are living with just a taste of that. A taste of that. I have a friend who's a pastor at a wonderful church and he was telling the story recently of the first time his wife had a seizure. And it came out of nowhere and they were so stunned by it. And they thought, well, maybe it's just one episode. And if you've ever had someone who deals with this, you know what this feeling is like. And so maybe it's just this one episode. They began to pray and they quoted scripture and they did all the stuff they knew to do. And then she had another one. And then it began to get worse to the point where he feared to not be at home in case, what if this happened? This could, be, this could go horribly wrong. Finally, she was put on medication that would help with that, but it also meant that they would not be able to have any more kids. They had two, and they were thinking about stopping anyway, but this sort of confirmed it. And the people around him were like, no, we don't accept this. We don't believe this. We declare the truth of God. We, we quote scripture. We say this, victory, victory. God's our deliverer, all of this stuff. Sometimes we try to use God as a way of controlling our circumstances. And when I say that we come to the end of ourselves and we say, I'm stuck, sometimes part of what that means is I can't even manipulate God to change things for me. And he felt stuck. What do I do? And as he shared this story, he began to say, you know what I began to realize is that God's deliverance, yes, one day is ultimate, but even now, his deliverance looks like his presence with me. That sometimes God's deliverance doesn't remove us from the situation, nor does it remove the situation from us, but God's deliverance looks like his very presence walking with us through it. You remember what the psalmist said? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Yeah, it's dark. Yeah, there's death. Yeah, there's pain. But there's not going to be fear because your presence is with me. One of the dads shared a picture he had this morning in the 9 a.m. He said it was like my kids. They're always scared to go up to the attic. He said they're scared to go up there, and there's no lights. They don't need me to turn the lights on. They just, need, they just feel better when I go with them. And sometimes it's like that. God, I, I, I don't know if this is going to change or not, but if you are really dwelling with me, if you are really walking with me, then we're going to walk through this. The deliverance of the Lord can look like his presence with us, his dwelling with us, the dwelling of God with us. I've told the story a few times, but not recently. In 2012, we had our, um, we had our fourth child, and we had a lot of friends who had four kids, and they all said to us, uh, the jump from three to four is not that big of a deal. And they lied. And um, not only was it a big deal, but we had a fourth child that was not like any of our other kids. We had a child that was, um, her spiritual gift was um, expressiveness, um, crying, 
um, trying to take charge of the world. Just last night, little Jane, she's almost four now, um, she went upstairs to go to bed. Holly was reading to her upstairs. I was sitting downstairs with the other kids. And all of a sudden, I hear, pop, 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 and Jane has bolted out of the room. I don't know if they finished the book or not. She's bolted out of the room. She's run down the stairs, and she just runs to the kitchen. And I was like, Jane, what are you doing? She's like, I need bread. And so she starts climbing on the counter, and she grabs a piece of bread and knocks the butter plate off the counter. You know, huge mess. And she freezes, you know. But that's Jane. She's always been a beautiful and wonderful disruption. <laughs> to, to, you know, and a gift. Um, and so those first few months were especially hard because we started New Life Downtown in April of 2012. Jane was born in June of 2012. So there's nothing like starting a church and then drowning, you know, uh, <laughs> at home. And uh, it was just perfect. Um, and it took us a while to realize, it was really only in hindsight that we realized that, that actually for several months, Holly, my wife, was, was dealing with some postpartum stuff, anxiety, depression, things that just made the water level keep getting higher and higher. Some of you know what that feels like. And we, we tried to find ways of, 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 of managing it, you know, take some breaks, and I would try to come home and help, and, but it just felt like the waters just kept rising. And my parents were still living in Malaysia at the time, and... Um, I just called my dad one night, it was like early October 2012, and my mom uh, was running a school, uh, a pretty amazing school, and my dad was pastoring the church, but between the two of them, he had a slightly a, a more flexible of a schedule. So we're talking on the phone, and he says, hey, son, how you doing? How, what's, what's going on? I said, well, we're not doing so good. It's pretty overwhelming, actually. And I didn't say any more. And before I could even articulate a question, he gave the answer. He said, do you need me to come? Do you want me to come? He's like, I'll come. I, I can come. I was like, what, Dad? I mean, how, how, you couldn't, how, how could you? He's like, no, no, no. I've, I've got airline miles. He's like, do you, you want me to come? And I didn't know what to say. I was like, um, yeah. I mean, could, could you? I mean, how? So, okay, hang on. I'll call you back. Within the hour, my dad calls me back and he says, okay, I've got it worked out. I've got the miles, you know, cashed in and all the stuff. I'm, I'm coming. I'm going to stay for a month. <laughs> I was like, dad, do you know what you're saying? Like a month, you know, like crying baby, chaos, messy house, you know, like, no, 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 I'm coming. And he came and he stayed and the, the whole atmosphere in our home began to change. Something happens when God shows up. Something happens when the father says, I'm, I'm coming. I'm there. I think the gospel is even more beautiful because it's not the story of us trying to articulate our need for God and God saying, I got it, I'm coming. It's actually much worse. Paul says, we, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. In other words, we weren't just saying, I, I don't know how to ask for help. We, we were saying, I don't need your help. And God says, but I know that you do. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Father sent the Son. The Son gave his life. Before we even knew how to ask for help, before we knew that we wanted it, before we knew we needed it, actually both these stories, the story of transfiguration and the story of the boy, 
are stories about fathers and sons. At the Mount of Transfiguration, you see the Father saying, Jesus, this is my son. Listen to him. And on their way down, verse 9 tells us, Jesus began to tell his disciples about his death and his resurrection. He says, look, the Son of Man will be raised up on the third day, but don't tell anyone. And in the second story, it's also the story of a father and a son, and it's the story of a son who, after his showdown with darkness and the demonic, lies as if dead. Verse 26, after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Mark's using the same Greek word here that's often used for resurrection. He's using it not to say this story was resurrection, but he's using it as a way of foreshadowing. You see, because there was another son. There was another son who went through the showdown with evil and lay dead, really dead. And everyone said around him, he is dead. Who can confront darkness and evil and live, he's dead. And on the third day, God took his hand and raised him up. There was another son. And because Jesus became the son who died, we can become the sons and daughters who rise. We can become the sons and daughters who rise. Evil is defeated and we are delivered. Why? Why? How? Because Jesus came. He lived. He died. He rose again. This has changed everything. This little story is a picture of the whole gospel itself. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one who carries with him the whole, the Godhead is in him. He is the deliverer, the divine deliverer. And he comes down the mountain, suffers our death because of his confrontation with evil, takes it on himself, our sin, our darkness, evil itself, and God raised him up. And so then it becomes really a story about us. Us who are tormented, us who are stuck, us who are in the thick of the situation, us who are in the valley like a father saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Us who are struggling to pick up the pieces after a failed marriage or a business or a painful relationship, a sickness, a disease. Us who are struggling to keep it together. Behold, God has come to be with us. God has come. And that changes everything. We say every Sunday the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Why? Because that is how God came to dwell with us. That is how evil is defeated. And that is how we are delivered. Would you bow your heads this morning? Confession is, at its most simple form, a way of saying to Jesus, I am not able. 
I am not able to change these things about myself. I am not able to deliver myself. I am not able to break these habits, change these patterns, stop these sins. I am not able. But it's the most beautiful thing we could say. Because Jesus, the God who saves, is here with us. 